Let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew 28. Matthew 28 will be in verses 16 through 20 today. For a baptism service today, I want to remind you of one of the main texts where Jesus actually commands us to baptize. So this sermon uh, is, I'm just titling, The Commission to Baptize. We know this text, the Great Commission text, in Matthew 28. And it's not just about baptism, obviously. So it's good for us to be reminded of the context in which Jesus tells us to baptize. Let's read verses 16 through 20. As we, uh, <clears throat> in Matthew's Gospel here, <clears throat> pardon me. As in Matthew's Gospel here, we see the crucified and risen Christ. Now, despite all the Jews, the Jewish authorities are doing to cover up his being risen from the dead, he is gathering his disciples to Galilee to commission them. Verse 16 in Matthew 28. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. First of all, here we see the commission setting, verses 16 through 17. I won't spend much time here. But in verses 16 through 17, it says the 11 disciples, the apostles minus Judas, who has gone to his own place. Um, the 11 disciples or apostles went to Galilee. And from other texts, like 1 Corinthians 15, it seems like this was, pro partly, this was probably part of a, thank you, part of a larger summit of as many as 500 believers in Jesus who saw him all at once after his resurrection. But the focus was clearly on the remaining 11 apostles because they were Jesus' hand-picked personal representatives. Um, they were his delegates, if you will, and... Uh, the idea of apostleship was the apostle was as the man himself that sent the apostle in authority. The apostles could speak for their master officially. So Jesus is commissioning the apostles, probably uh, uh, with a larger crowd of disciples, followers. And we see their worship of the risen Lord. It says when they saw him, they worshipped him. There's no doubt at the end here of Matthew's gospel... They all know Jesus is now and forever God in the flesh. He's truly man, but the, he's the eternal Yahweh God, the God of Israel, the God of all. But there's also, not only do we see their worship of the risen Lord, but we see their doubts in weak faith. It says, but some doubted. That's a final note of a theme that keeps repeating through Matthew's gospel, disciples with weak faith. So that should encourage us um, and correct us as we find ourselves to be people of small faith. But this commission Jesus is about to give will strengthen their faith as he reminds them of the most important truths in the world now that he has died and risen from the dead. So next we see the commission's authority, verse 18. 
Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Not just, as you may have heard from older versions, not just all power, that would be a different Greek word, but exousia, all authority, the universal authority given by God the Father to wield all power. We can kind of break this authority down to understand it in three different ways. For one thing, it's kingdom power inherited. Throughout the Gospel of Matthew, what did Jesus preach throughout his earthly ministry? He'd been preaching, proclaiming the kingdom of heaven. Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now he declares that all authority, all kingdom rights and power, all dominion really, has been given to him. As the son of David, the son of man who has accomplished his earthly mission. Because of his victory and his death and resurrection, he has inherited the highest throne there is. He's the ruler chosen by God to inherit all things. In fact, this language of of, um, universal everlasting dominion or exousia, this word for authority here. If you look in the Greek Old Testament, shows up in Daniel 7 where we see the son of man. Daniel 7.13, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, and glory, and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. Or, if we're looking at the Greek Old Testament, his authority is an everlasting authority which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. But of course, not only is this authority over all the kingdoms of the earth, Jesus says this is all authority in heaven and on earth. It's not only the sort of dominion that Adam was given over the entire earth in the beginning under his, under his creator, it's all authority in heaven as well. So secondly, it's not just kingdom power inherited, it's divine glory that's given. Because, think about it, who alone can have all authority in heaven and on earth? Only the Most High God. Daniel 4, Nebuchadnezzar had said of of God Most High, for his dominion, same word in the Greek Old Testament for authority, his dominion is an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Of course, we know from Isaiah forty-eight eleven, God says, my glory I will not give to another. So only a man who is also God the Son can receive such a gift of authority from God the Father. Universal authority. All authority in heaven and on earth. God will give that to no man who is a mere man. Only to God the Son. So, as Jesus prayed the night he was betrayed, John seventeen five, facing the cross and the resurrection glory to follow, he said, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So the man Christ Jesus, risen from the dead, he now receives all the glory due his divine nature. No longer is it veiled. No longer do the apostles have to just get a glimpse of it on the Mount of Transfiguration. 
And then it goes away again. It's hidden again. Now, Christ sits at God's right hand. And so it's also, third, it's cosmic dominion that's one. It means that the Son of Man, the last Adam, has one cosmic dominion. The seed of the woman has triumphed over the serpent. He's standing with his foot on the serpent's head. So he has authority now over every other authority, seen and unseen, heavenly and earthly. And that means he has the authority to gather in Satan's captives from every people and nation. Not just because he is God and always has been God and always will be God, but in his humanity now too. He has overcome, the Lamb has triumphed, he has conquered to inherit all things as the Son of Man. Like he said in John 12, Verses 31 through 33. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world, Satan, be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die, John writes. So truly, Jesus' authority is a universal authority. It's a cosmic dominion. No one can can question it. No one can, can veto it. Not the kingdoms of this world. There is no truly closed nation to the gospel in the sense that we are not allowed to go there. No, Jesus has given us the authority to go there with the gospel. And there's no evil power in the heavenly places that can stop this or overrule this. We can free Satan's captives in Jesus' name because he has all authority. Now the commission's content verses 19 through, well, through the beginning of verse 20. Go, therefore, on the basis of my authority on heaven and on earth, go, therefore, for that reason, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So Jesus has received authority that he might bestow it to us, his disciples, For his kingdom conquests. We have a job to do. We have a war to pursue. So first there's the demand for worldwide spread. Go therefore. The disciples were not to wait for the nations to come say to the land of Israel. And hear about Jesus the Messiah as they stayed in Jerusalem. No. They were to spread out. And in God's providence, um, whether it was through persecution or through intentional missionary endeavors, the church spread out. And we are still spreading out, praise God, with the gospel. In fact, Jesus said this is what the prophets predicted must happen. Luke 24, 45-47. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written... That the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Now that the gospel has happened as an event, Christ has died. Christ was buried. Christ has risen from the dead. Now there is a message to proclaim that is valid everywhere. And that can save people everywhere. Matthew 16, 
that, I'll back up for a second. I'm sorry. Um, so there's the demand for world, worldwide spread. Then there's the authority to make disciples. He's not giving us authority to do whatever we want here and flout the laws of whatever nation, etc. He's not giving us authority to go um, create our own kingdoms in this world. No, the authority has a reason. It has, has a mission attached to it. What do we have authority to do? Well, we have authority to make disciples. What are disciples? Well, disciples are those who follow and learn from a teacher, a master. It's, yes, it's intellectual learning facts, truth, and how it fits together and how to live it out. But it's also imitating the master. A disciple learns from and, and imitates and follows a teacher, a master. So with the apostles leading the way, Jesus' disciples have the delegated authority to assemble more disciples for Christ by means of the gospel. That's what we have authority to do. And as Matthew's account has already made clear, this is an authority as Christ's servants to build and guard his church. If you just if you just parachute into this last these, these last few verses of Matthew, you might not catch that. But if you've been reading the whole, the whole book, Matthew's made it very clear that the disciples will be a body called the Church of Jesus Christ. So it's authority as Christ's servants to build and guard his church. And that's an authority that's not only earthly, but heavenly. Matthew sixteen fifteen, Jesus said to his disciples, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell, or Hades, shall not prevail against it. The very powers of death, the very worst the enemies of the church can do, will not prevail against it. Verse 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Speaking of the authority Christ is giving his church as the church, which uh, is made clear also in Matthew 18, where he says something similar, where he's telling the church how to try to bring um, those who sin to repentance in their midst. But he says, Matthew 18, 18, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. And in the, the verse right before that, he had, he had said the context is the church. If someone refuses to listen even to the church, when you tell the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So there's the demand for worldwide spread, the authority to make disciples, and then the ingathering of all nations. Now that Jesus Christ has been crucified, raised from the dead, the apostles are to make disciples of all the nations because Jesus is the seed, the offspring of Abraham. That's how Matthew's gospel began. He's the son of David and the son of Abraham. And God had said to Abraham, In your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. And that's where we get to baptism. Fourth aspect of the content of this 
this commission. Baptism into the triune name of God. That's where baptism comes in. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. You know, in all the New Testament, just to make it clear, in all the New Testament, we are always and only told to baptize disciples. We are commanded to baptize them specifically and only them. And of course, this baptism, as the New Testament makes clear all over the place, this baptism is water baptism, immersion in water. It pictures something. Now that it's Christian baptism, now that it's um, this baptism for Jesus' disciples particularly, it pictures going under the water of God's judgment in Christ. We died with him in Christ at the cross and being raised to newness of life. We're buried in the likeness of Christ's death, raised in the likeness of his resurrection. So this is the outward sign or the symbolic action of becoming a disciple of Jesus. And to be a disciple of Jesus is to take upon oneself the one name of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's one God, three persons. I'm saying I belong to him through faith in Jesus Christ. I in pledging my, my undivided worship toward this God. His name is upon me. I am now part of his people. And then, we aren't done once we baptize disciples. Because fifth, there's the teaching of Christ's commands. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. What does that word mean? Observe. Teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. Well... It's uh, to observe something there is to keep, to guard something even. It's not enough to know Christ's commands. We need to know them in the first place. But Jesus' disciples learned to carefully keep his commands. Matthew goes to great lengths to record the whole spectrum of Jesus' teaching and commands in his gospel. And the rest of the New Testament further explains Christ's law and gospel. And if you think about it, Scripture tells us it was the Spirit of Christ that breathed out the entire Bible. It was the Spirit of Christ that empowered the Old Testament prophets to write. So, the entire thing is from the Spirit of Christ. It's Christ's Word to us. The New Testament is built on the foundation of the Old, and it correctly interprets the Old Testament. And we need the whole thing to know what Christ has told us, what he wants us to know, his law and gospel. Not only his gospel promises, but then also his royal commands to those who have embraced those promises. And as people everywhere learn to observe all Jesus' commands, the prophets are fulfilled. Isaiah 42.4 He, the Messiah, will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice or righteousness in the earth. And the coastlands, the far-off Gentiles, wait for his law. Last major point of the text is the commission's promise. The last part of verse 20. And behold, Jesus says, I am with you always to the end of the age. Break that down. First of all, it's his powerful presence every day that he's promising us. There's not a day in our life when we will wake up 
And Jesus is not there with us in power, in blessing with his church. When he says, I'm with you always, literally all the days. (laughs) It's like the Lord had told Joshua in Joshua chapter 1, No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Hebrews 13 picks up on what the Lord said to Joshua there, and it quotes it as a promise for us. It says, Hebrews 13, 5, For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Again, it's appropriate to ask some basic questions. Make sure we don't miss some things. How is Jesus able, if he's truly man, how is he able to always be with us? He's ascended to heaven in the body. How is he always with us? Well, because he's God. And God is everywhere present, isn't he? He's also with us through the Holy Spirit, whom he's sent to sanctify and empower his church. And in the scripture, God's promise to be with someone also means more than just that he's there somehow watching. That's part of it. But when God is with someone in the scripture, it means it's a promise of constant support and power and blessing. God is everywhere in some sense, even in hell. But he's not with everyone in the sense that he's with his church. Christ is with his church in the sense of support, power, and blessing. Remember, Matthew chapter 1, Jesus' name at his birth uh, from the prophet Isaiah. Emmanuel, God with us. That's how Matthew started. In Matthew 18, Jesus had promised that he would be present in the midst of any true church gathering in his name. He said, there am I in the midst of them, where two or three are gathered in my name. And now the Gospel of Matthew ends with the constant presence of Emmanuel. He's with us always. Um, So his presence is not simply his presence. It's his presence and royal power and authority. So where he's present with his people, he acts for their kingdom benefit. He gives success to their kingdom endeavors. And his kingdom authority endures always from generation to generation. It doesn't have an expiration date. So, his presence is not just his powerful presence every day. It's his everlasting presence until his coming. He says, to the end of the age. And consistently in the Gospel of Matthew, what is the end of the age? It's the time, Matthew 13, when uh, when the wicked are forever separated from the righteous. When the, the final judgment happens. Matthew 24, it's the time after the gospel of the kingdom, Jesus said, would be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. And then the end will come. And then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather his elect from the four winds. From one end of heaven to the other. So Jesus, when he says, I'm with you to the end of the age, he's promising his unseen presence with his people until they experience his visible presence forever. I'm with you though you don't see it. 
until I'm with you forever when you do see it. He couldn't make a better promise to us. As we sang just a moment ago, what more can he say than to you he has said? As was said when Jesus ascended to heaven by the angels, um, Acts chapter 1 verse 9, when he had said these things, as his disciples were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So Jesus is with us. We don't lack anything from him, except the day when we see his blessed face, face to face. But in the meantime, we have a commission to fulfill in his power and grace. So as we wrap up, some conclusions about baptism. If this is where, if this is the context in which Jesus commands baptism, what does it tell us about baptism? Number one, because of Jesus' authority, we can and must baptize. We're not doing this because our church thought it would be a neat thing to do. No, it's much more solemn and holy than that. Baptism is indispensable, non-negotiable. Not because baptism magically cleanses a person, it does not. But it's because it's a solemn action that's sanctified and commanded by Christ the Lord. So because of Jesus' authority, we can and must baptize. Number two, because of Jesus' command, because of what he actually told us to do, we must baptize disciples. We only baptize those who have consciously entrusted their very souls to Jesus Christ. We do not baptize those we hope will become disciples. We baptize those who credibly profess a repentant faith in Jesus Christ. When Peter had preached on the day of Pentecost to the Jews that they had crucified their Messiah and they cried out, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. What, what promise is for all those people? Well, it's the promise that repentant sinners receive forgiveness of their sins and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And with many other words, Peter bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So, it says, those who received his word, those who decided to obey the gospel, those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So because of Jesus' authority, we can and must baptize. Because of his command, we must baptize disciples specifically. Number three, because of Jesus' command, we must teach baptized disciples. I'm glad each of you are here today to watch, to witness this baptism. But that is not the end. That's only the beginning for each of you if you're part of this church body. 
you have the responsibility then for those we baptize to uh, participate in building them up in Christ, helping them mature. We dare not baptize converts and then neglect them or ignore them. And we could easily do that. In fact, some churches could easily um, baptize people just for a record of how many we've baptized. Look at us. But if they're not teaching them, not discipling them as we often put it, if they're not sticking with them through the rest of their life to build them up in Christ and His truth, they're not fulfilling the Great Commission. We need to be very careful as a church to do the whole commission, not just part of it. We have a responsibility that's ongoing. Baptism is only the beginning of what the church must do for disciples. In fact, those who who declare their discipleship and baptism are declaring their wholehearted intention to learn from and obey the Lord Jesus Christ. Number four, and lastly, because of Jesus' promise, we know we are doing his work in his presence. He hasn't left us on our own to do all this. This is true in good times and in bad. It's true whether our converts are many or few. We can't just look at the current circumstances or even what we see as the current results of our labors and conclude Jesus isn't paying attention. If we're obeying what he told us to do, he's with us. He hasn't left us. That's true in good times and in bad. That's true even in 2023, even in Portland, Oregon. It's always true. Our Lord is here with us, empowering us by his word and his Holy Spirit. We find two great examples of this truth applied in the life of the Apostle Paul. The first one in Acts 18 when he's in Corinth. And he is he's communicating the gospel, he's gathering disciples, but he could be afraid because of possible opposition. He's all, already suffered great opposition just north of there as as he's been working his way south through Greece. Acts 18, verse 8 says, Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue in Corinth, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. I have many here who belong to me, whom I have chosen to salvation, and I will call them to myself through the gospel. No one will stop it. Well, that's an example of, actually, pretty much good times. Um, Paul could have been afraid, but Jesus even gave him a promise that time. No one's even going to attack you here in Corinth. Oh, they tried, and then they... It, came back to bite them. But no one successfully attacked Paul in Corinth because of Jesus' promise. But there was another time when Paul sat in a dungeon and and he didn't get out of there without losing his head. It was not such a good time. All had apparently deserted Paul, almost down to the last man. But even there, the Lord was still with him. 2 Timothy 4, verse 16, Paul says, At my first defense... before the court of Caesar, 
No one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed, and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Even when he's facing martyrdom, Paul says, even if that's the context, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely, unscathed, into his heavenly kingdom. He said, the Lord stood by me when everyone else forsook me. He was with me even then. As we've translated into English what Martin Luther wrote, did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. You ask who that may be. Christ Jesus, it is he, the Lord of hosts, his name from age to age the same. And he must win the battle. Let's pray together, shall we? Father in heaven, we thank you for how clear this commission is that we have from our Lord Jesus, from your own Son. Help us to be bold. Help us to be joyful Christians. Help us to understand that the gospel is your power to salvation for everyone who believes. From all nations, the Jew first and also the Greek. We thank you that you've transformed so many here by the power of the gospel. Thank you for yet another that we get to baptize today in your name. May this be a holy thing in our sight. And Lord, if there are those here, possibly who have not yet themselves bowed the knee to the Lord Jesus in faith, who have not trusted in him and trusted their souls to him so that he would forgive their sins by the blood he shed on the cross, to make them right with God. If anyone here is not yet a disciple of Jesus, we ask that you will change their hearts today through your word as it has been preached. Help them to realize Jesus is Lord and they must deal with him. And he calls them to himself in grace to be saved from their sins, from the penalty of their sins and from the the evil of their sins. He calls them to be forgiven, to be cleansed, and to follow him. We pray this in his name. Amen.